Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Greetings. Greetings. You know, I was going to, I thought we had a visitor in the back there when I saw this handsome young man on the back row here. Did you guys see how he cleans up? Nice. Love your beard trim and haircut. Wow. Give me the number of your barber. But uh, we're excited today. Michael is going to be taking membership today and... Uh, we are thankful for that. The Bible says the Lord adds to the church, right? And so he's adding Michael to our number. Psalm 135 says, praise ye the Lord. So why don't we say that today? Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord and the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Everybody say the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in the earth and in the seas and all the deep places. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth and maketh lightning for the rain. He bringeth wind out of his treasures who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon his servants, who smote great nations and slew mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land for an heritage, an heritage unto Israel, his people. Thy name, O Lord, endures forever, and thy memorial, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge his people, and he will repent himself concerning his servants. The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. They that make them are like them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Bless the Lord, O house of Israel. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Ye that fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. Let's say it one more time. Praise ye the Lord. Praise Father, Son, As I read the first three verses of Psalm 115, my sermon today is called God Does Whatsoever He Pleases. Psalm 115, starting in verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say... Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for directing us to these big God psalms, Lord, so that we can see clearly, more clearly, who you are. Lord, we pray today, Lord, that we would leave this place different than when we came. 
that we would be inspired to prayer, that we would be uh, not afraid of our enemies, for perfect love casts out all fear, and that we would rely on you and we would remember that you love us and that you're good and that you do whatever pleases you. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, you may be seated. 700 years before Jesus came into the world as a babe in Bethlehem, born of the Virgin Mary. It was a good young man who became the 13th king of Judah after his father had died. This was the time of the divided kingdom. There was a northern part of the kingdom, which was, is referred to in the Bible as Israel, and a southern part which is uh, comprised mainly of the tribe of Judah and I believe Benjamin, uh, and it is where Jerusalem is, and that was referred to as Judah. This is during the time of the divided kingdom. This king, who was the 13th king of the divided kingdom of Judah, was named Hezekiah. Everybody say Hezekiah. I really... uh, After learning about this and reading about this, I think that Hezekiah is somebody that we should lift up in memory as a wonderful, incredible man of God that God used. And that's him on our slide today, offering up a prayer to the Lord at a critical time in his life. This 25-year-old son was the son of King Ahaz and Queen Abijah. And thankfully, Hezekiah did not follow in the footsteps of his ungodly father, Ahaz, who had presided over the southern part of Israel's divided kingdom. The Bible tells us of Hezekiah that he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he was more like David was. He was one of the rare good kings of God's people during this dark time in the history of the church. Queen Abijah shares the same name, and many believe she is the same woman who was the daughter of Zechariah the prophet. Perhaps this godly woman taught her son to fear the Lord, and as his mother and himself saw firsthand the wretched fruits of the sins of Ahaz, her husband, and of course Hezekiah's father. The things this vile king did along with the vast majority of the children of Israel, were unthinkable. The state of things must have grieved Queen Abijah and the little boy Hezekiah very much. In that respect, I believe we can somewhat relate to them. How many people look around and you're just kind of grieved by what you're seeing? Is that an understatement? I read last week in the news, and I'm sorry, I don't want to taint our service with this, but they put a drag queen in a pulpit of a Methodist church, and they delivered the sermon last week somewhere in America. Really? And they preached about how God's word says we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And that their transformation into a woman from a man was in defiance of what the world thinks out there 
And God loves for us to transform. I mean, really, Siri, can you believe that this was done? Now, that's reprehensible, and I don't want our lives to be focused on that. But they were living in a day that makes this day look tame and silly and fun. For as bad as it seems today, what was going on in their day was so reprehensible that if I detailed what they did in great detail, you would be horrified on a level where you would think, What I just said was just funny. These things grieved the heart of Hezekiah and everyone dedicated to the true worship of God. In the midst of it all, though Abijah had no doubt heard Isaiah's prophecy of the coming judgment, but also of a coming king. Everybody say, a king was coming. This king would have a rule that would never end. He would be the wonderful counselor, right? What does it say in Isaiah 9, 6 in this prophecy? It says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, that he's going to bring an end to the violence. He's going to bring an end to the ungodliness and a light is going to shine forth. And so this came during the life of Abijah, the mother of Hezekiah and Of course, during Hezekiah's life as well. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. In the darkest of times, the light of God's promises still shine. And it seems that although what they were doing, you know what they were doing? They were offering their children as burnt offerings to Baal. Can you imagine that? This was not going on just on the side streets. This happened by God's king of, the, of this area of Judah. He sacrificed his own children to the god Baal on an altar in a burnt offering. Could you imagine that? But in the darkest times of the light of God's promises, they still shine. And I would tell you today, people of God, do not despair. Amen? Keep up the good work of raising children with the knowledge that God in due season will allow us to reap a better harvest if we faint not. When her son Hezekiah was born and allowed to live, unlike those who had been offered to Baal, through hope she trained up her son to serve the Lord. Perhaps hearing the prophecy of the coming Messiah gave her faith to teach her son God's law. Or maybe she believed he might even be the one. You know, what we can do rather than despair and rather than be upset, rather than talk about constantly what they are doing, what they are thinking, what they're going to do, we should be talking about what God is going to bring to pass. And it seems that in the lifetime that while all this ungodly, who would have imagined that in the time that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, who would imagine that in the time of that prophecy they were burning their children and offering them to false gods? The people of the northern kingdom referred to as Israel had compromised themselves and taken on the ways of the idolatrous Canaanites. They had allowed to continue to live among them, and Judah had done the same. Judah, the southern kingdom, which included Jerusalem and the holy temple of God, had become infested with idol worship. And the Bible says they burned incense on every high place and under every green tree. 
God's wrath was kindled hot against his people of the southern and the northern kingdoms for these grotesque perversions. King Ahaz himself had done something horrible. In addition to the burning of his own children, he was angry with the king of Israel north of him. And so he contacted the king of Assyria and said, if you can kill them and you can deal with them, I will pledge allegiance to you. He was a traitor of God's people. And so guess what? The Assyrian king came and he destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and took the children of Israel captive. And so Ahaz built this beautiful new altar went into the temple of God in Jerusalem and had them take out the altar that was supposed to be in there. And he put a new altar dedicated to this King Sargon II. Is that disgusting or what? The Bible tells us they took the great uh, brazen sea, the sea that was at the brazen labor and they took it and they took it out of the temple too. And that morning and night, the new orders of the priests were to offer sacrifices to the Assyrian king Sargon rather than Yahweh. Guys, can you imagine? Like, God, you think it's bad now. You think it's bad in America now. How many would happen to say that I think it might have been worse in Israel then? Raise your hand if you think it might have been worse in Israel then. Wives, can you imagine your husband offering your children as burnt offerings? Can you imagine having... Folks, this was not the world. This was the church. We look at the church today and we're appalled at what they're doing. We're appalled at the doctrines they have. We're appalled at all of it. But this was the church of their day. This is not what was going on in the world. What they was going on in the world of the church in that day is far beyond the evil that is going on today. Could you imagine having any hope in your life at all, women? If your husband's life was polluted with this kind of evil, but somehow Abijah held out hope and she taught Hezekiah, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There's a king that's coming and he's going to set things right. Yes, I know that your father is evil. I know that he's living in sin. I know that he burns your brothers and sisters. I know that all of Israel is burning incense on every high place and under every green tree. But let me tell you, there's coming a day when the king of kings and lord of lords will come. Let me tell you, he's going to level the high places and he's going to make them low. He's going to take those low things and he's going to lift them up. And she preached a gospel to him that he bought and that he internalized and that he decided to live like father, like son. Oh no, his father was not Ahaz because when a man becomes a man of God, he doesn't look back and say, I want to be like my daddy. He says, I want to be like Christ. God even used this treachery to judge Israel, of course, by the Assyrians and his judgment was the beginning of sorrows for Judah too. It was in this time that God brought the life of Ahaz, the king, to an end at the age of 36. Immediately after Hezekiah was inaugurated, he was inaugurated at the age of 25. How many of you are near that age? Nathaniel, could you imagine being made king of all of Judah or all of Israel? 
I love the story, and I'll tell you what, this is the part we should, we should remember this part as much as we remember the bad of the other. You know, right now we're getting ready to have an election and they're going to tell you what they're going to do on day one. Well, I'll tell you what, I don't know what they're going to do on day one if, or if they get in anywhere. But I'll tell you what Hezekiah did on day one. You know what he did? He said, it's time to clean house. And I love it. I can imagine what this would have been like. Imagine he's a 25-year-old young man. He sees what his father's doing. He sees evil all over the land. He knows if God gives him the opportunity, he can change it all. But he doesn't know. Is his dad going to live another 20 years, another 30 years, another 40 years? Is he going to have to live with all of this? But God saw fit at the age of 25 years old to allow this young man to be king. And you know what he does on day one? On day one, he said, it's time to clean house. And he goes, and there is an eight day, it takes him eight days to clean all the junk out of the temple. And they clean it all out and they throw it and they break down the altars and they take them and they throw them in the Kidron, in the brook of Kidron, which is there between uh, the Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives there between there and they're throwing the stuff in the creek and they're getting rid of it all and they're cleaning out the filth of the ungodliness and he's bringing the priests in and they're having to be cleansed because in order for worship to be able to uh, to be renewed in the right way, the priests are going to have to be cleansed and not just cleansed from the filth that's on their hands but cleansed in the way that the law prescribed before they could offer up sacrifices. He tear down the, hall place, the high places of the false gods and after the eighth day deep cleaning and destroying the profane elements, there is a celebration. And guys, the celebration, like we, we can't even comprehend this. We can't even imagine it. But they started offering sacrifices and, and uh, the, they began to feast and worship they offered so many sacrifices to God, thousands of bullocks, thousands of sheep, thousands of goats, so much so that the priests could not keep up doing it. They ran out of, like, you know how we have a shortage of employees today? There's a shortage. There was a shortage of the priests. There were so many things being offered to God, they couldn't offer them. They, could, they were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they were doing everything they could to offer these sacrifices, but they could not kill the animals fast enough. They could not boil the animals. They could not pass out the food, but it was a giant feast of excitement that went on. They sang from the book of Psalms and they praised the Lord on a glorious scale. And I love it. The king ordered the, the, the king ordered the priest, sing and sing the Psalms. Get your instruments out and play the music of God. He tells them, this is what you will do as they're cleaning. This is a great day. And if that wasn't enough, you know what he did? He reinstituted the feast of the Passover. He sent out a giant invitation into all the land. And the people came uh, by the thousands and the tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands. And they showed up. And he gives a thousand bulls himself and 600 sheep. And then the leaders of Israel, they give a thousand more bulls and uh, 10,000 sheep. It's amazing. It's am Can you imagine? I've been to a hall gross before with one pig. Can you imagine this? Thousands upon thousands. I was in Myanmar and they have one big giant, Mitam, and they kill that thing and everybody's celebrating and we're all grabbing chunks of meat and cooking them over the fire. We're like, yeah, this is great. That's one. We're talking 2,000 bulls. I think it was 17,000 sheep. I don't know how many goats, guys. 
Can you imagine this kind of a party going on? Could you imagine that all of Israel smelled like, you know, the strip smelled like Stringtown on a Friday night? You know, you're, you're driving down, you're like, you can smell the Chinese restaurant and you can smell Longhorn. No, this was thousands upon thousands of fires cooking and ascending up. The Bible says it was a sweet smelling savor in the nose of God. And as they begin to worship and they begin to sing and they begin to eat and their feast came to an end on the seventh day, you know what they did? And I don't know that they ever did this in the history of Israel. They said, we're having such a good time and it's so exciting that you know what we're going to do? We're just going to start the feast all over and we're going to do it for seven more days. And so the feast went on for 14 days, eating and celebrating and singing and worshiping and restoration. Can you imagine it? The Bible says there was not a time like this in the history of Israel since the time of Solomon of restoration and singing and praise and the renewal of worship. Second Chronicles 29 records this best and you can also read about it in Second Kings Chapter 20 and 21, I would encourage you, if you want your kids to have a picture of something beautiful and wonderful, let them see, let them see this. See, the Bible says we should think on whatsoever things are good and lovely and all that. And what do we want to do? We want to read the news. Folks, this is news right here. This was a glorious day and a glorious time for God's people. They ran in zeal from the feast back to their local towns. And guess what they did when they got home? They started tearing down the high places and destroying the altars and cutting down these trees that had been venerated. And what happened and began in the center worked its way out into all of the nation. God had promised wrath for their sins and it was still on its way, but for several years it was delayed as Hezekiah and those in the kingdom enjoyed themselves. It was the greatest time of joy in generations. And for 14 to 15 years, God's people rejoiced and returned to the law of God. It was after this when the mighty king, the new king of Assyria, the son of the king who had taken Israel captive, whose altar had been set up in the temple, he came to besiege Jerusalem. This new king of Assyria was named Sennacherib. At this very time, as the city was surrounded, Hezekiah heard that Sennacherib was coming, and it's when he made the tunnel. Hezekiah's tunnel, which Benjamin and Nathaniel and I went through, it's, it preserves the water supply for the city. So during that siege, they would not be without water no matter what. He fortified the walls and he did all of this before Sennacherib came. But he realized that even with a, a practically endless supply of water and even with the fortified cities, it was a matter of time before the king of Assyria busted through. And at the same time, he became sick. He was sick, the Bible tells us, and as we read earlier, he was going to die. God sent word through the prophet Isaiah explaining this to him. He said, get your house in order. You're about to die. It was in the midst of trouble, the likes of which none of us could imagine that Hezekiah did not lose heart. Instead, what did he do? Anybody know what he does? He prays. Now, I don't know how he did this, I mean, Jason, if God came to me and told me I was going to die, it might not occur to me that I could talk God out of this, right? Get your house in order, you're going to die. I'd just be like, okay, I want to make sure my life insurance is paid up and, you know, 
And so here he is. He's the leader, right? He's the leader of, the, he knows that, that things might change after he's gone. He had enjoyed this 15 years of peace and, and he's now a 40, about a 40-year-old man. And, but God is telling him, you're going to die. You've lived four years old, longer than your dad ever did and you're sick and you're going to die. Whether or not Hezekiah wrote Psalm 115 is up for debate, but it seems to me from learning his story again and going into it and studying the psalm that he did write this psalm and that he wrote it right then. He wrote it when he was sick. He wrote it when Sennacherib was outside the gates. He wrote it when he put his petition up before the Lord to save his city, to put his petition up before the Lord to save himself. We know what happens. Maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but we too here are right now at a crossroads of history where the forces of evil surround us on every side and we feel weak and dying as our own strength fails us. And the question is, is what are we going to do? You know what we're going to do? We're going to do as Hezekiah did. We're going to do as the psalmist did, whoever he was, if it wasn't Hezekiah. And we're going to go to the only one who can hear us offering up our prayers for he alone can save us. Amen. There was this guy named Rabshakeh, if you remember, who came and delivered a letter to Israel. And he said, have this read for everybody. And, and you know what they do in this letter? They mock God. They're like, you think, oh, your God has told you you're going to live and he's told you that he's going to keep me out just so you know. He couldn't keep me out if he wanted to. He's a sissy and I'm going to destroy him just like I destroyed all the other places and praying to God is a waste of your time. And what I love that Hezekiah does, rather than, you know, calling the uh, Fox News or CNN you know what he does? He takes the letter and he walks into the temple and he lays it down and he says, God, read this. See what the king says about you. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Something must have gone right in the upbringing of this young man. That instead of despairing and rolling over and dying, or instead of giving up for the king of Assyria, he brings his repetition literally to God. That's what this is in the picture here. He's in there and he's brought the letter. You see it down there at the bottom? And he's put it in and he's like, here God, read this. And I believe this is when tradition says that Psalm 115 was written. I'm going to read a little bit of 2 Kings. So Rabshakeh told Hezekiah in person in writing, Let not the God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done in all the lands. By destroying them utterly, shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, which my fathers have destroyed? And then if you remember in 2 Kings 20, and if you're a Bible student and you're trying to figure this out, chapter 19 is where God deals with the Assyrians. But then chapter 20, it tells us about the sickness of Hezekiah. But when you get to the end of the story of, of the sickness of Hezekiah, it lets you know that it's during that time. And it's actually the story within the story. So this is how we know that he's sick at the same time that Sennacherib is outside his gates. Because we'll see what happens. In those days, Hezekiah was sickened to death. 
the prophet Isaiah. So in those days, in what days? The days of Sennacherib's besieging of Jerusalem. Now listen what God says. Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order for thou shalt die and not live. How many people say that sounds pretty certain? Right? Then he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. Everybody say he prayed. He prayed to the Lord saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. So he cried and he wept and he poured out his petition to his wife, to his nation, to his friends. No, he poured it out to God. As we begin Psalm 115, it is the third psalm of the great praise or the Halil. 113 was the first one of them, of this group of psalms that is said at every great holy gathering of the Jewish people and was said for thousands of years. It began with the psalm that says, praise ye the Lord, the one that we called promotion from the Lord. The second one is waters withdraw and mountains move. And today what we're coming to is God does whatsoever he pleases. These are what I call big God Psalms. We live in a world today where people don't think of, they think of God as their little buddy. They think of God as their co-pilot. They think of God as their lucky uh, rabbit's foot. They think of God as a little a genie that you rub and, and you get a, a, a one or two or maybe three wishes out of. That's not the God we serve. We serve the God who is in the heavens, who does whatever he pleases. There's no inspired heading ascribing the author or circumstance, but scholars and tradition says that it was written in the days of Israel's king Hezekiah, maybe by Hezekiah himself. Certainly the good king's story makes this at least a reasonable assumption, if not a definite truth. God had come to him telling them that he was going to die soon and pleaded to the Lord for more time. The author of the psalm, whoever he was, was asking for more time too. You will see that the other parts of the psalm connect greatly with someone who shares much in common with Hezekiah's glorious work of restoring the kingdom by ending idol worship and reinstituting the biblical worship of God by the priests and the Passover. As you will see in verse 1, the beginning is also reminiscent of what God tells Hezekiah as he answers his prayer concerning Sennacherib and his sickness, what God pledged to do was for the very same reason that verse one says. As we begin verse one, it says this, not unto us, everybody say, it's not about me. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, give glory for thy mercy and for thy true sake. Today we live in a world that's all about you. It's all focused on you. What's God going to do for you? God's going to give you. And what do people say? You're living my best life now. It's all about the life I'm living. It's, it's very individualistic. It's certainly not looking at the church as a body or God's plan in the world. It's, is, is my life going to be better? Is my day going to be more enjoyable or whatever? We can get caught up saying, oh, I want to come and serve the Lord because I want to have well-behaved children and I want to have a really nice life and I want to be blessed financially. 
And all of those things are often the result of following God, but we don't follow God because of the individual blessings that may or may not come to us. They follow. We do not follow them. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name. Give glory for thy mercy and for thy true sake. The psalmist cries out a true and important biblical life perspective we must always keep before our eyes that God does what he does for his own glory and not for ours. The Bible says that God does not share his glory with others in one sense. And he also actually says later that he does. And what he means by that is we don't get the credit. We get the blessing. We get to be with him. As Christ is honored, his name above all names, we will be with him. As he goes in battle to defeat his enemies, we will be riding beside him. And in that sense, we will share in the glory, but not because we've done it, not because our sword caused the victory to occur, not because our truth changed anything, but because we are with him. In our man-centered world where even the church has shifted its message to reflect the same, everything is about us. It's about what we like. It's about what we're comfortable with. It's about what appeals to us. We as God's people have fallen prey to the devil's devices and been conformed to this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we examine worship and preaching and music and prayer and the sacraments, our discussions can begin and end with how much we like this or that or what people who visit our churches might think of what we're doing or thinking instead of what pleases God. God's glory and what pleases Him must retake center stage in all of our discussions, great and small, if we are to lead the way to repentance for our nation and the church as Hezekiah did in his day. Man has made himself the standard instead of God's word and in like manner our prayers too can be myopic. When we pray, we should pray for God to be glorified, not for God to do whatever we think is best. Your ideas might not be as good as God's ideas. What do you, what do you think about that? Maybe your ideas might not be as good as God's. God will be glorified whether it be by your life or by your death. As Paul explained to the Philippians, his reason was incredible. He said, do you know why I'm still alive? I'm still alive because me being alive brings glory to God than me being dead. And he goes, and when that changes, then when I'm dead, I'll glorify God by being dead. That's what he says in Philippians 1. He said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better for me, but it ain't about me. He said, for me to abide must be a blessing for you. And that's why I'm still alive. And I'm thankful that I'm still alive. And with every breath I have, I'm going to serve God. And he said, I've learned that I will glorify God, whether it be by my life or my death. We belong to him and his purposes. If we live our lives glorifying him, if we die as so many of us, of our forefathers have done without being able to live out our full life, what he does in our life will still praise his name. We belong to him. Verse two, wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? Today the godless are bold and they're filled with the bravado of our time. I don't remember people being like this when I was a kid. There seemed to be a fear of God, at least, that kind of prevailed our culture. But now they make fun of God. They mock him. I, I had a neighbor one time who didn't believe in God. And, 
And, and he did this, but this was so rare. He goes, if there's a God, let him strike me. And I ran fast as I could away from him because I'm figuring God might do it right here. I mean, why not? He's real. And I believe it. But that was rare. But now it's not. Now people just talk about God like he's trash, like he doesn't exist, like he's some sort of fictional fairy tale. He's like some helpless God. There seems to be something worse now with no fear of God. There is contempt for God. And they do this. I, 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 read, I read something on a Christian's post the other day that I thought was weird. And they were identifying with the world. They're like, they're like um, you know, there'll be no tattoos in heaven and there'll be no long hair and there'll be no motorcycles. And he goes, and you know, all that'll be in hell. And he goes, hell's gonna be lit, baby. Hell's going to be a party. I mean, people literally talk like this. They act like hell's where all the fun people are going to go. And it's going to be a great raucous time. Or, you know, they make fun of God. Many of those, including those who lived among God's people when these words were written, have faced down brazen enemies who defy God as though they have nothing to fear. But I'm going to tell you right now, things haven't changed. Everybody say, things haven't changed. As Goliath of Gath mocked with his big gaping mouth, defying the armies of God, God always has the last laugh. The mocking word of the great Assyrian king Sennacherib certainly caused faith to flee from God's people in Jerusalem, but they did not worry God at all. God had raised up this pagan king and he would deal with him when his time had come. This is what God can do when we cannot. Hezekiah knew where to go when he read the words sent to him, blaspheming God, he took them to God. He may have felt like the three Hebrew children who defied Nebuchadnezzar, telling him that they knew their God was able to deliver them, but they didn't know if he would or he wouldn't. Nonetheless, they would not bow and worship to their dumb golden image as they were commanded. And I love this reply. I was telling Jonathan early, we should, we should memorize this because we're going to face a lot of nasty people in the world. I love this reply, okay? This is what we should say back to the defiant demons of this world who work through men when they look at you and they go, so Jason, where is your God? Look at all the sickness and the terrible things going on in the world. Look at the hunger. Look at the disease. Look at all the difficulty. Where is he? And that's what he's responding to. They look at you as evil sometimes does and it seems that it's going to triumph. They laugh at you and God in pride as though he is one of their non-existent powerless deities of their own imagination. And when they ask you where he is, if he isn't coming to your aid because he doesn't do what they think he would do if they were them because the fools that they are, here's what you should say. My God's in heaven and he does whatever he wants. My God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. That's what he does. I love this answer. My God is in the heavens and he does whatsoever he pleases. You can't conjure him. You can't stir him as though the wind from your mouth could move him to action. He is real and he is in the heavens far above all creation and every power. He is there and you are down here in the dirt where he made you from and where you will soon be again and your name forgotten with no memory of you that ever existed at all. My God is in the heavens above all of us doing whatsoever he pleases 
not what you and I think he should do or what pleases us. He does what he does for reasons that he does not need to explain to you or the worms that will eat your dead carcass and spit you out and feed the grasses that God has sent to feed the animals of the world. That's where he is. He's in heaven and you're in the dirt. We too would do well to remember that God does whatever he pleases. This is difficult for us today, but as you might need to put it, you might need to be put in your place. Today, you yourself might need to be reminded that God has a plan that may not include what you think is best, and it may not be what you want right now. His ways are above our ways, and His thoughts are above our thoughts, and they are even past finding out, the Bible says. And this might be hard for us to take, but it's true, and so I'm going to say it. Sometimes it pleases God not to do what pleases us. Sometimes it pleases God not to stop a king from throwing three young boys into a furnace that he has heated up with fire. Sometimes he doesn't stop a king from throwing one prayer warrior into a den filled with lions who are ready for their dinner. Sometimes it pleases God not to stop soldiers from nailing nails into the hands of an innocent man or mocking him as the king of kings and lord of lords. But this shouldn't keep us from praying. In fact, the story of Hezekiah should turn us all into prayer warriors. For though the prophet Isaiah, through God through the prophet Isaiah, had told Hezekiah that he was going to die soon to get his house in order, Sennacherib's violence had been foretold by the same prophet and the others, and yet Hezekiah, like Abraham our father, an example of what it means to have faith, they cried out to God not to do what God said he was going to do. And I've just got to live there for just a minute. You remember what happened when God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom, I'm going to destroy Gomorrah, and I need to tell Abraham, and he told Abraham, what did, what did Abraham do? Abraham said, please don't do it. You might go, well, what kind of bravery is that? <laughs> it's the kind of bravery apparently that comes from faith. Now, did ultimately Sodom and Gomorrah, were they destroyed and could Abraham's prayer stop it? No, he couldn't stop it. But it didn't stop him from asking God, God, don't do it. Lord, don't destroy the city. He was wrong about it. And you know what? It's okay. We can be wrong. We can even want the wrong things. God isn't going to give us the wrong things. Knowing that the God of heavens, the God that is good, he responds to our prayers the way he has done so many times and the stories of our spiritual fathers should keep us praying. And Hezekiah called on God explaining what he had done, his best to follow his word and glorify him with his life. And of the reason he expects God to hear him. I like this guy. Doesn't James say that that's what we're supposed to do? First, he says in chapter one, he says, when you pray, ask in faith, nothing wavering. For the man that doesn't believe he's going to get what he asked for, he is not going to get it. Does it not say that in James chapter one? But you know what it says in James chapter five, Jason? It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It says Elias was a man who was not much different than you. He experienced all the trials and difficulties that you did. It said, however, he prayed that it would not rain. And it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. You might go, well, I mean, Lord, that's, that's terrible. Well, you know what? 
Elijah knew they were worshiping the storm and the rain god. You want to shut the mouth of the storm and the rain god, don't let it rain for three and a half years. How do you think, they, how do you think their worship festivals were going with no thunder, no lightning, and no rain for three and a half years? They were having a hard time. But God can do that. Remember what they said of Jesus? Who is this man that even the wind and the wave and the storms obey him? Hezekiah had done what few others would have even dared to do. He called on God on the basis of the life that he had been living and he expected God to answer his prayer. God had said, you're going to die. And he goes, could you change that, God? Could, you, could, you, could, could I not die? He was like the man that James described who prays expecting God to respond to his prayer. And that's how we should pray. 2 Kings 20, he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. Everybody say he prayed. He prayed to the Lord. I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass before Isaiah had gone out in the middle of a court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again. Here we have a man turning to the wall, praying, weeping sore, calling out to God. And somehow, I don't understand. Don't ask me to put this in some theological doctrine box because I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't, it does, this doesn't go in any box. God had said, you're going to die, but he doesn't because he prays and he asks not to. And God changes the situation Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of thy father, David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. God cares about tears. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man. How many of you have cried out to God with tears before the Lord, fervently asking and expecting him to do what you're asking him to do? How many of you do that? So you know when I saw your tears, I heard your prayer. Behold, I will heal you. And on the third day, you'll go up to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years. Did anybody in the Bible ever, did anyone ever get like a time limit on their life? And I don't mean to be silly here. He knows he's going to live 15 years. What kind of crazy things could he do? I'm going to swim across this raging river. Why? I got 15 more years. I ain't dying today. I can tell you that. Wow. I'm going to run at this guy with a sword and I'm going to cut his head off and I'm going to fight all these guys. They're like, what do you mean? He's like, I got 14 more years. God said I got him. Come on in. I mean, I mean, what kind of life must this guy have lived? I got 15 more years. 14 more years, 13, I got 10 more years. What do you think I'm gonna do? You think he walked with God during that time? He's not dying, he, all the kinds of, this was amazing. It's nothing short of amazing. I had to read it again and again to feel confident. I felt like bad even telling you God had said he wasn't gonna do something, but he prays and then God does the thing. Just amazing. Can you imagine that our prayers do anything? I think that we believe sometimes they don't because we believe that God's sovereign. Yeah, God's sovereign, but he's so sovereign that if he says something's going to happen, he can change that too. That's amazing. It's amazing. Thou shalt die and not live. God had said. 
He told him this sickness, he was not going to get better from it. But did dad even stop Hezekiah? No. Anyway, God changed the fate he himself had spoken was coming to pass. God is on the throne and prayer somehow still changes things. This should make us pray more fervently. As James tells us, Elijah prayed, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James 5, 16. As we get to verse 4, it seems to me this is one of the great points that lets me know that this psalm was written by Hezekiah. He hated the idolatry his whole life. And on the first day of, that he's inaugurated king, he doesn't just have a party for himself. He has a cleaning party where they clean the filth out of the temple and they begin to remove these altars. Verse 4, the, their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. The ones asking you where God is. They serve gods of their own making who are no gods at all. Sennacherib worshipped this god named Nishrach, made of stone. God had a plan for him that would involve Nishrach's temple. And we'll hear about that. Verse 5, they have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes they have, but they see not. These false gods are not in the heaven. They're not even here on the earth. They're not even it. They're, they're less than gods. They're less than men. They're just rocks and trees. They're inanimate objects that people take and they cut a tree down and they carve it to look like something that it's not even what it looks like. He's like, they have hands, but guess what? Their hands can't do anything. Like God is mocking them. They've got eyes, but they can't see you. They have a mouth, but they're not talking to you. Yeah, they, they are not even as good as the image that they have been made. They do nothing and they have no power regardless of how much you believe they do. They are nothing and certainly cannot save you, Sennacherib. And they cannot save your besieging army from the God of heaven. Verse 6, they have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have and they smell not. Like Dagon, who thought to share a space with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that? The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put him in there with Dagon and they come in the next day and Dagon is laying flat toward the Ark in worship. He's, he's a stone. They're like, wait a minute, this, this, something's wrong here. And so they set him back up and so Dagon's there, you know, you know. And so they come back the next morning. Dagon is fall over and his head is broke off. His hands are broken off. But folks, all it was is just a rock broke in some parts. Dagon, there's no Dagon. No God. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Mocking the gods that men make with their hands that merely look like hands and mouths that are shaped like the mouths they wish they had to speak, but they do not. They offer them food, but they cannot eat. They talk to them, but they cannot talk back. Who are the idiots here, folks? It's them, it's not us. Verse 8, they that make them are like them. You have to understand, they that make them are like them. He's saying they're fools, they're idiots, they're powerless, they're nothing. They're nothing but a rock. You, you know, we call someone a blockhead. They're nothing but a bunch of blockheads. They're idiots. 
Those who make these false gods are fools. They know that they cut a tree down. They know they cooked their meal with the leftover wood that they didn't use to make the idol. They know that they're praying to something they created and they know it has no real power. They're the worst kind of fools. Fools who know better yet still play the fool as if they don't know. The Bible says in Romans chapter one, they know there's a God, but they suppress the knowledge of God because they can't stand him. They hate him so much that even though they know he's not real and they know the gods that they make are false, yet they still offer food and they worship them and they think we're idiots. This is the world they brag about not believing in God until they're calling out for salvation on their deathbeds or in the middle of a hurricane, a fire, or a war. You'll find that they're all calling out, Oh God, save me! All men believe just as the demons themselves do. Do they all? They all try to suppress what they know is true because knowing is so detestable to them. Nevertheless, they know hell will be filled with men and women who willingly reject the God they knew was real and they worship what they knew was not. People lament today. God's not. All these people are going to hell and they don't want to go. Yeah, they do. They don't want it. They hate God. Verse 9, O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The psalmist calls on God's people to trust in the Lord that he would protect them. Hezekiah had done what he could. He had fortified the walls. He had cut the large tunnel through the rocks so Jerusalem's water supply would be safe. But he knew that without divine intervention, his doom was sure. The Assyrians camped outside with 185,000 battle-hardened troops prepared to do whatever it took to batter down Jerusalem's walls as it had done to hundreds of other walled cities in the region History was not on Jerusalem's side, but God was. Verse 10, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. He calls on the priests, the leaders of the church, and we should call them to repentance and trust in the Lord. If you see when he says, O house of Aaron, he's talking about the Levitical priesthood. We need to call on the people today to not look to marketing techniques or business principles. It's not the law of numbers or strategic planning that builds the church today. We need a fountain that cannot run dry. We need the power of the Spirit given on the day of Pentecost. We need the Holy Ghost to do the holy work that we've been given to do. It must begin at the house of God. And Hezekiah restored priestly roles before he reached out to the rest of the nation as a whole. It is from the church, the kingdom of God here on earth, that we must reach the whole world. Verse 11, ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. It won't merely be people who say they are in church or people who say they're Christians or people who have the name of pastor or evangelist or as some say today, apostle on their vest. It will be those who truly fear the Lord above all else, first and foremost. The Lord has been mindful of us. It says in verse 12, he will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel and he will bless the house of Aaron. He is a God who is there watching, listening and responding to the prayers of faith of his people and answering them with the blessings they can hardly contain. The heaps of gifts brought to Jerusalem were more than they had places to store. When Israel's worship was uh, restored, not only did they bring all the animals to sacrifice, they brought so much gold and so much treasure and so much back tithing that it piled up in piles and piles and they had to build houses to put it all in. This was a great time. 
Just as the windows of heaven pour out not only the Holy Ghost, but blessings raining down from the windows of heaven, overwhelming us. Verse 13, he will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. I love it. This is the prosperity gospel and Hezekiah believed it, but it's a true prosperity gospel. It's certainly a real and true form of the perversion that distracts us today. Verse 14, the Lord shall increase you more and more and you and your children. Amen and amen. May we have the faith to see this here in our church. Verse 15, you are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Verse 16, the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he hath given to the children of men. Not just blessings in heaven one day, but the meek shall inherit the earth. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth. Everybody say on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 17, the dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. He's not speaking against an afterlife. He's calling out to God and he's basically saying, hey God, if I die from this sickness, God, if I die from these Assyrians, I won't be around to praise your name. And this prayer of the psalm is kind of our prayer. Oh Lord, save me. What? So I can praise you. Lord, save me so I can live for you. Lord, save me so you will get the glory. Lord, save me. And that's what this fervent prayer that the psalmist is praying and it should be our prayer today. We see the psalmist reminding God in a sense, not that he had forgotten, but that if he had died, his mouth would be stopped from praising him. He didn't want to be silenced. He wanted to live and praise the Lord. Isn't that what we want? Verse 18, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise ye the Lord. Everybody say, praise ye the Lord. No matter what God does, We will praise him from now on for as long as we can. That's what the psalmist is saying. He was asking God to save him, but he's saying, Lord, if you don't, I'm still going to praise you with my dying breath, every breath I got. You can read in 2 Kings 19 how that God raised up Hezekiah. And we can see not only did he raise up Hezekiah and give him 15 years of life, We read what he said in response to Sennacherib and we know what he does. I'll read it for you as we close today. This is the result of effectual fervent prayer of the righteous Hezekiah. As Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. Just like you see here, he put it out there. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims. Thou art God, even thou alone, all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear, O Lord, thine eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent the reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations of their lands and have cast their gods in the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord God, I beseech you, save us out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God only, even thou only. And Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent Hezekiah saying, thus saith the Lord, that which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. God heard him. This is the word of the Lord spoken concerning him, the virgin of the daughter of Zion hath despised thee and laughed thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at thee, whom thou hast reproached and blasphemed, against whom thou exalted thy voice and lifted up thine eyes on high, even thou, the Holy One of Israel. This is God talking to Sennacherib. 
By thy messengers thou hast reproached the Lord, and you said, The multitude of thy chariots I'm come in the height of the mountains to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the salt, tall cedar trees and the choice fir trees, and I will enter the lodgings of his borders and in the forest of his at Carmel. I have digged and drunk strange waters with the sole of my feet. I have dried up the rivers and besieged the places. Hast thou not heard how I have done it of ancient times that I have formed it? Now have I brought it to pass that thou shouldest lay waste to the fenced city of the ruinous heaps? He said, yeah, I said you were going to do it, Sennacherib, and you've done it. But let me tell you what, you've messed with the wrong dude on the wrong day. Therefore, their inhabitants, they were of small power to you. They were dismayed to confound. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb. They were as the housetops. The corn lasted that has grown up. But I know thy abode and thy going out and thy coming in and thy rage against me because they rage against me and your tumult is come in my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and I will bridle your lips and I will turn thee back by the way which you came. And this shall be a sign you shall eat this year such things as grow themselves in the second year which springeth of the same in the third year and reap. And he goes on and explains to him. He tells Sennacherib so he will not uh, doubt for a moment who's doing it, what he's going to do every year and where he will be when God takes his life. Therefore, the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come in the city. He shall not shoot an arrow here. He shall not come before it with his shield. He shall cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, the same shall return and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it. And here's the words, for my own sake. And for my servant's sake. Hear that from the psalm? For my sake. He says, this guy says, you're not going to bring your shield. I'm going to be a shield. You hear that in the psalm? These are the elements that make me believe this was during the time of Hezekiah. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote the camp of the Assyrians. 185,000 soldiers died in their tents that night. And when they arose in the morning... They were corpses. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and he went. And he went and dwelt in Nineveh. This was not his hometown. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his God, that his son smote him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And his son reigned in his stead. We know that God allowed Hezekiah to live. We know that he defeated Sennacherib that day. And we know that Psalm 115 talks about the defeating of the enemies, the trusting of the Lord to save him from death, how God is his shield and his blessings, how the priesthood is restored in the Levitical priesthood of Aaron and how that God had done this for his glory. All of these things were done in the same way through the story of Hezekiah. It's a gigantic story. I could be preaching for the next three hours, giving all the details of it. I would encourage you this week, tell the story to your kids. Read that section about the feast and the, the partying and the singing and the offering of the sacrifices and the heaping up of the blessings around Jerusalem when they return to God. And remember the words of God. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Don't give up on what God can do here. Yes, our nation deserves to be judged. We deserve to have evil rulers like the ones that we've been having. We deserve to have the horrible things happening that are even happening in our churches because of the ungodliness and the weakness and the, the compromise that is here. But we can be the people that pray, that call on God, and we can be like Hezekiah 
and we can see a restoration and a beautiful time of returning to the Lord and the blessings that follow after. Amen? Amen. I know that's a mouthful. I know that was uh, quite a lot to hear today, but I hope it encourages you today, and I hope that you can say one more time with me, praise ye the Lord. Let's say it one more time all together. Ready? Praise ye the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the exciting story of Hezekiah, for the powerful prayer of Psalm 115. Lord, the great praise, Lord, that your people offered you. May we offer the same praise today. May we, even when things seem so hopeless that we can't even imagine how they could turn around, know that you are able to do that. And Lord, you're able to save our nation. You're able to save our families. You're able to deliver us from evil as you delivered Hezekiah and his people that day. Deliver us, O Lord, and let us live in the land of blessing. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us. 